in this discussion of Romans 1 through 3, how we got to be unrighteous sinners. Now, we don't have any trouble convincing us, I don't think. At least most Christians, you don't have trouble convincing them they are a sinner. Uh, if we're honest, we know we are. <laughs> I mean, even at our best moments, uh, you know, I, I often try to take inventory, as they say, in AA. I'm sort of the uh, unofficial chaplain of an AA group in, in uh, our area, and they've been really dear friends and uh, helpful. In fact, the other night they gave me a little retirement dinner, Mary Sue and I were there, and it was a spaghetti dinner, and they got up and pronounced me an honorary alcoholic, which was probably the best thing they could do for me, you know. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, it, you know, they talk about taking inventory, and we have to do that every so often. We have to take our inventory. We have to go for confession and make sure that we've covered the whole waterfront. And I carry with me everywhere this little card, and it is the, a brief confession before a father confessor from the full confession of St. Demetrius of Rostov. If you read this brief confession, you wonder what on earth the full confession was, because I can't think of anything that he didn't cover in the brief confession. But anyway... Uh, we, we need to take inventory, and tonight we're going to take some inventory. Uh, we'll let you take your own. We'll just lay it out there, and you decide what, what of this applies to you. Paul is announced in, in verse uh, 16 and 17 he, uh, that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We're going to see how righteous God really is. The very word righteousness means that which is right. And in AA, they have a phrase, just do the next right thing, trying to help guys and, and women, too, who are getting out of that horrible bondage. All right, what do I do next? Just do the next right thing, whatever the next right thing is. That's what righteousness requires of us, just to do the next right thing. And so, it says, in the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's a heavy, heavy-duty statement. And notice the rest of the verse, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, God is not happy <laughs> when people suppress the truth. And human beings have a way of either suppressing it or changing it, as though you can change the truth, you see. True truth is not changeable by its nature. It's either true or it's false. And so, human beings want to edit the story. They want to make it nicer than it is, or if they're trying to convict somebody, they want to make it worse than it is. And so, all kinds of effort is made to rewrite the story and 
of our life or somebody else's life. But the scripture says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, that which is not conformable to God himself, and unrighteousness of men, that which is just simply evil doing. And we'll see what this ungodliness and unrighteousness is spelled out in a moment. Because, oh, let me say a word about the wrath of God. There is a fantastic statement in the Orthodox Study Bible. I'm really getting these promotions in on the Study Bible, but it's, seriously, I, I love the, the notes and I use them all the time. And in the note at the bottom of the page, it says, the wrath of God is his righteous and holy judgment. It involves, now listen to this, this is very important because there are a lot of people in our society that can't stand the idea of God being a wrathful God. But God's, uh, it's simply his holy and righteous judgment. It involves no loss of temper or loss of self-control. It is calm and impartial free from emotion and bias, and is based on the truth. Isn't that a wonderful statement about the wrath of God? See, God, God doesn't fly off the handle and just get so mad he wants to lop your head off. No, he's, there's no loss of, of, or of his temper. He is under perfect self-control. But God's wrath is his righteous judgment. He sees things like they really are. God's wrath falls on those who knowingly and willingly suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Although sin has wounded the ability of humanity to relate to God, even the most terrible sin cannot destroy the image of God in us. How wonderful. That is true. The most terrible sin cannot destroy the image of God that is in us. It can be very badly marred and distorted, but the image of God is indelibly imprinted in every human soul. It's a part of, of who we are as a human being, and the worst of sin does not destroy the image of God within us. It's very important that we understand that. Now, Paul goes on to say, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. How do you think, what, what do you think Paul means by that? It is manifest in them. How is what may be known of God manifest in us? Let's say a person who's, who, who lives in some remote place of the world never has... Uh, has heard of Christ or read, seen a Bible. Does that mean that what may be known of God is manifest in them? The answer is yes. It is yes. Because he put a conscience in them. You see, we have a conscience. And that's part of the image of God within us. Now the conscience can be seared as with a hot iron, the scripture says. You know, uh, back in olden times, even not so many years ago, uh, the only way they could stop 
a person who had been injured or uh, wounded in wartime or had an amputation or something from hemorrhaging was to take a real red-hot iron and sear that. And uh, there is a house in Franklin, Tennessee, the Carnton Mansion, beautiful old pre-Civil War home that was used as a hospital for the Battle of Franklin. And one of the particular rooms that was the, had the most sunlight in it was where the surgeon operated. And it was on the second floor of the house. And out beside the house is a, is a smokehouse. And they say that as the surgeon would amputate the limbs of these wounded soldiers, he tossed them out the window, and the pile actually got as high as the edge of the roof on the smokehouse out there. And the only way he could stop the bleeding was they had a fireplace in that room. Someone had to keep the fire going, and they took, a hot, they took irons and got them red hot, and then he'd sear the wound, and it would stop the bleeding, but he also would... Uh, you know, it would destroy germs, and so it was the only way they could keep down infection. And uh, pretty tough way to have to get your wounds treated. But they did. That's what they did. Now, human hearts and souls can be seared. Our conscience can be seared. So we don't feel anything anymore. We don't feel the pangs of conscience after a while when the heart gets hardened. And we can go around saying, oh, I'm okay. I'm not as bad as I know lots of people worse than I am and point to our next door neighbor usually. But that's not the way it is with God. You see, God's wrath is without partiality. We find in Romans chapter 2. And he knows what we're really like and how we truly are down in the deepest part of our soul. And he knows what we've done right and what we've done wrong. He knows that. God is not fooled by our rationalizations. And so we have a conscience. And he has spoken to us. And he has revealed himself to human beings through conscience in verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God shows it himself. For since the creation of the world, now we're going to see not only through conscience, but through creation itself. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without an excuse. Notice, God is saying here in the scripture, St. Paul is telling us, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. That's interesting. Through, through, through the creation around us, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. No human being is ever going to be able to say, but I didn't know enough, oh God. Nobody, I didn't know that there was a Jesus. Well, John 1, let's, let's take a moment just to turn to John chapter 1, because this is a very important principle to understand. 
and it's, it's, uh, it, it's in many places in the scripture. Many scriptures in both the Old and New Testament teach us these things. But in John 1, it speaks in verse 8. This is page 211 in your Orthodox Study Bible. He was not that light. That is, John the Baptist was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. That is, Christ gives light to every man coming into the world. And he does it in two ways, through our conscience and through creation. And if we look with an open heart to creation around us, or if we listen to that still small voice within us, we can be pointed toward God. And God is such a merciful and loving God that if you will accept whatever light you're given, he will give you more light. And I am convinced that there is no person who's ever lived in the most remote place on the face of the earth that if they took the light God gave them through their conscience and through creation around them, he would move heaven and earth in order for them to have enough light to be saved. God is in the business of getting people into heaven, not keeping them out. God wants people with him in his great eternal family. He doesn't want to kick us all into hell. That's the last thing God wants to see happen to any of us. He doesn't want us there. He wants us with him for all eternity. And so he, he floods the world with light. Earthly light. Look at the sun. The, the psalmist tells us that even the sun itself as it moves across the heavens speaks to us, not with a voice that can be heard, but still speaks to us of who God is. And so we, we have this marvelous creation around us, and you here in Alaska are blessed with so much here. It is such a beautiful place, and so, many so much beautiful scenery and beautiful animals, and what a privilege you have. And God is speaking to you and to everybody in this state about his great glory and his mercy and his kindness. And if we will listen, God will speak and we'll know he's speaking. And there will be no one on the face of the earth that will be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know God. I, you didn't speak to me. I didn't realize what I was doing. Ah, that we won't get off that easily. Now, God also gives us particular or special revelation through the scriptures and through, of course, through Christ coming. And through every possible means, he seeks to manifest himself to us. So, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood. We're back now on page 339, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They being those who would try to rail against God and say, you gave me a raw deal. I didn't know. Because though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. Do you see? The essence of glorifying God is being thankful. The scripture tells us to be thankful in all things. 
no matter how difficult your circumstance in life may be, no matter how you may have felt injured, no matter how, how hard your life may have been, you still have things to thank God for. In fact, the scripture says, give thanks in all things and for all things. There are numerous verses that tell us that. I don't have time to trace those down. But we're to be thankful. What does the Eucharist mean? The very word evharisto is the way the Greeks would pronounce it. What does the word Eucharisto mean? The what? The thanksgiving. Yes, the giving of thanks. That's what it means. And so, we are to be thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Instead of being thankful, instead of worshiping and serving the Creator, they became futile in their hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. I want to say humbly, I don't know if we have any college professors here, but I think that most of you, if you are a college professor, would agree with me in this that most college classrooms could have this, this placard printed up above their, up above the entrance into those classrooms. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I went with my dear friend, Father Daniel Biantoro. By the way, he did ask me to bring his greetings to you and his love. Uh, I went with him back in the fall uh, on the campus at Ohio State to help him get enrolled there. And he's working now there on his Ph.D. in Islamic studies, though he knows more than his professors, but uh, because he was converted from Islam to Christ and was uh, is a very learned uh, man. And uh, we first started, went over to the School of Anthropology because 14 years ago or 15 years ago he'd been working on a Ph.D. in that. Uh, uh, cultural anthropology and found out that after 10 years they wouldn't give him his credit for that and he'd have to start all over again so he decided to switch to a study in Islamic studies which is better for him anyway as far as what, how he can maybe make use of that in, in his ministry but uh, as we walked up and down the halls of the uh, anthropology department at Ohio State, and I looked at these posters, I mean the uh, uh, huge bulletin boards, and all of the crazy, insane groups that are advertising themselves on campus at Ohio State. I said, it was bad when I was here in the 60s. This is way beyond that. I mean, it was a Sunday school picnic compared to what it is now at, at, at Ohio State. And I don't doubt that it's the same way at most universities around our country. The stuff that they openly advertise on the bulletin boards in the universities is just appalling. And all this is done in the name of, you know, multiculturalism and multi-this and multi-that, but it's all evil. That's what it is. It's just sin. It's sin in every form and color and shape imaginable. And so it says that they, because they knew, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. 
So you see, the first started, by the way, idol worship started this way. It started with idols that looked like man. And then notice the, the devolution. And birds, well, that's still up in the air. <laughs> and four-footed animals, and then creeping things. After a while, idol worshipers will get down to the snakes that crawl in the ground, or the bugs and the spiders. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. You see, when you stop worshiping and serving the Creator and start worshiping the creature, you stop being thankful to God and start being thankful for, who, for yourself and what you have accomplished in life and how smart you are, then what happens is you start a moral downward spiral. And sooner or later, verse 24 happens. God gives them up. Those are some of the saddest words in the Bible to me. God gave them up. God says, you want this? You really want this? I'll give it to you. And the worst thing that can happen to us as human beings is to be given what we want with all our hearts so much that we will do anything to get. Because almost invariably when we're wanting something that badly, it's not good for us. There's only one thing I know of that we need to be willing to do anything in order to get it. That is to become a Christian. <laughs> to be saved. Lord, I want that enough that I'm willing to leave anything behind in order to get it. And so, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And so, here is one of the saddest next few verses, uh, it, passages in all the Bible. It starts with the lust of their hearts and then goes from the lust of the heart to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, for the lie, the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul had to stop with a benediction in the middle of this downward spiral and say, who is blessed forever when he mentions the, theater, the creator. Amen. And then he says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Second time, it says, God gave them up. First, he gave them up to uncleanness, just sort of being sort of bad. Now he's going to give them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Brothers and sisters, we live in this day and age when we're told that, you know, uh, nothing's really right or wrong. It's okay, you know, to just accept all kinds of alternative lifestyles. Well, I want to tell you, there are some right things and some wrong things. And this is very clear here very clear that homosexuality is one of those things that happens when God gives people up. Now, it doesn't mean that there might be something that happens in the genetic structure of human beings that makes one person more prone to be this than that. 
Uh, they tell us that 10% of the population by genetic makeup are going to be alcoholics if they drink. But they're not if they don't drink. I mean, they're not practicing alcoholics, you see. And so these men and women who realize that they are alcoholics, and I've spent a lot of time with a lot of them, and I love them dearly. We've got a bunch of them in our church there at St. Ignatius that are really pillars of our church. I mean, some of the most wonderful people in that church are, are sober alcoholics. But uh, I'll tell you, they know just as sure as they're breathing that one drink will put them right back in to a lifestyle that's totally destructive. And the only way they can live a decent life is not to drink. They don't take the next drink. You can't do it. There's some people who can drink a glass of wine at night or a gin and tonic or something, go to bed, everything's fine. But there's some people, if they do that, they're on, they're on a fast roller coaster downhill. And they know it. You know something? They're in sometimes better shape than a lot of nice, sophisticated, good, clean, moral people who just don't know God and don't see their need for God. It's a whole lot better to be a robust sinner and know that you need God and need to be forgiven than to be this nice, sweet somebody that never does realize how lost you are and how sinful you are. So we're all sinners, you see, in the sight of God. But there are some things that are, that are, that are morally degrading. And so there are lifestyles that are that way. I believe that there are people who are homosexual by, let's say, orientation. Who knows why? Whether it's psychological or something uh, uh, genetic. Who knows why? But they're not practicing homosexuals. The church has always said, fine, if it doesn't matter whether you're heterosexual or homosexual. God loves you just as much. It's the practice of homosexuality that is a sin. It's clear in the scriptures, and I hope I'm making myself clear so that you're not ambiguous about this. The practice of homosexuality is considered one of the most degraded of sins. It's in a very serious category. So the first category of those who gave themselves up are people who give themselves, uh, that God gave up, are people who give themselves to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts. And a lot of people just live it out in their heart. They haven't yet begun to practice it outwardly. To dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchange the truth of God for the lie. These, this is the first category. But the second category, where we get a little deeper into fallenness is those who gave themselves up to vile passions and then he describes homosexual practice. And then verse 28, this is the deepest part of the pit here. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, this is not just homosexuals here, he's talking about all of the above. All who do not like to retain God in their knowledge God gave them over to a, the old King James word was reprobate mind. This translation says a debased mind. And 
The meaning is, if you don't want to retain God in your knowledge, then he gives you over to a mentality that cannot retain the knowledge of God. The idea is that this kind of person's mind can no longer retain the knowledge of God. That it's something has shut down inside their mind. And you can talk to them till you're blue in the face and they won't believe in God. They won't listen. And so that's what's called the reprobate mind. Now only God can judge those things. It's not up to us to judge who has a reprobate mind. It's just that there's a warning that it can happen. I remember once in my early years as a Baptist minister, after Mary Sue and I had married, I was in my first full-time pastorate, and there was a man who was an alcoholic in that community that uh, I had gone and witnessed to many times. And of course, young Baptist preacher, my, my approach was real subtle. I would walk in and say, have you been saved? You know, but uh, his name was Albert, and he went by the nickname Bert. And Bert and I had had numerous conversations, and Bert would always, very as soon as he could, as nicely but also firmly as possible, tell me to bug out, you know, get away. He wasn't interested in what I had to say. And then we had this big tent revival meeting in town, and I would, I you know, I saw Bert there on the back row, and I watched him hang on to the back of the chair and kind of tremble as the evangelist gave this altar call, they called it. Of course, they had no altar to call you to, but still, that's what they called it. And uh, Bert wouldn't go, and he wouldn't go. In fact, one night I told Mary Sue I was watching Bert, and he just turned around and woof, stalked out. And I said, you know... I believe Bert has committed the unpardonable sin. <laughs> you know, one of those, I was a real pious young Baptist preacher. I could judge who had committed the unpardonable sin. You know? because, and I said, I'm not going to go talk to him anymore. And I didn't. And God said, fine, I, now I can work with him. You know, get you, st stop you from bothering him. I can work on him. Because he'd known what had happened in that family. And he came up there, and they... And, and about six or eight months later, it was at a Christmas... Uh, it was like uh, just a day or two before Christmas Eve, and some of his relatives were having... A, Christmas party gathering, but he went up and knocked on the door, and one of the men who himself had had a dramatic conversion came to the door and says, Bert, you don't want to come in here. He said, why? He says, we're studying the Bible in here. He said, that's why I came, because I knew you would be, because he'd known what had happened in that family. And he came up there, and they brought him in, filled him up with a bunch of coffee, and got him awake enough to be able to talk, and they talked to him about Christ. He gave his heart to Christ. Now, 
You know, I wish it, I, we'd, I'd known the Orthodox faith to be able to teach him in those days, but we gave him all we had. Burke was converted to Christ, and he never drank again till he, to, to, the day, to the day he died. He stayed sober from that moment on. And I know God can do that. He can work in people's hearts. We don't know who has become reprobate of mind. It's not for us to judge. Only God knows that. I had made that judgment about Bert, but God hadn't. And you may think your husband is a reprobate, but keep praying for him. Keep praying for him because God may not have given up on him yet, you see. And so, he says, God gave, for this reason, God gave them up to a reprobate mind because they would not retain the knowledge of God in their mind. To do those things which are not fitting, and now look at the results, and this is really awesome. There are nine kinds of sin that are listed here and 12 types of sinners. First, he says, being filled with all unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is just doing what's not right. Anything that's not right. Sexual immor immorality, that's high on the list, always is in the Bible. Wickedness. I, I brought along with me some definitions of these words because it's kind of hard to remember right off the cuff what some of these, what's a good uh, Definition. By the way, for unrighteousness, you can include injustice, selfishness, being against the rights of others, the opposite of right-doing. Wickedness is just all kinds of evil. And then the next one is greed. And so let's see. So sexual immorality, wickedness, greed, or covetousness. Greed, of course, is discontent with the sight of another's supposed superiority or advantage. We see somebody we think has superiority over us or they own something we don't have, own or have had a right or a privilege or an advantage that we don't have and so we're, we are greedy or we're covetous of that. You know, Paul speaks of covetousness as a form of idolatry. It's worshiping things and America's filled with the sin of idolatry. We are such a covetous nation. It's probably uh, second only to all of our immorality, but they're all right up there at the top of the list. And then maliciousness or malice. What is it to be a malicious person? It's to desire to injure or desire the injury of someone else. Full of envy and murder. Murder is to kill or uh, to... There's a difference, by the way, between murder and killing. Uh, murder is the willful taking, the unlawful taking of a life, but the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say strictly thou shalt not kill. There was a different Hebrew word for killing. They killed animals, but they didn't murder animals when they uh, took them in for offerings. Uh, in the uh, Jewish system of, of giving offerings. And so strife, strife is one of those things. To be a contentious person is to be a, a one, one filled with strife. Deceit, deceit is 
it, the, the word here means bait for fish. It's the, a deliberate attempt to mislead. Evil-mindedness or evil, evil disposition is to take all things in an evil sense. Have you ever been around a person that no matter what you said to them, they'd take it in a bad way? I just don't like to be around people like that. I, when I was working in the service station at night when we were in seminary, and I, I worked for a guy like that that did not matter. I could try to talk about God, and he would twist it around some way. He'd try to make it sound like I had some kind of sec, uh, underlying meaning to what I was saying that was sinful. And it was usually some sexual connotation. And you couldn't talk to the man without him twisting what you said and made it appear that you weren't saying, you were saying something dirty and filthy instead of trying to have a normal, decent conversation. And so there are people like that. They just have such an evil mind that they can't think or say anything that isn't evil. And then there are those that are whisperers. Well, I'm sorry, this, this begins the 12 types of sinners. They become whisperers. Uh, <clears throat> these are people who are gossips. The very word whisperer, gossip, has a hiss to it, sort of like the serpent, the old serpent of old. And it means a secret slanderer, someone who goes around in secret and says, did you know? And then they tell something that's just a little off. And then, of course, by the time it makes the whole circuit, it's terribly off by the time it gets to the end of the line. So gossip is a very serious sin. And then there are those who are backbiters. And there are those who are haters of God, who cannot stand to think of God in their mind, but their mind burns with enmity against God. There are the violent. They're the proud, the boasters, the inventors of evil things. Every time I see that phrase in Scripture, I think of Hollywood. You know, it just seems like there are certain people in our society that try to think of new ways to sin. The fact is, they're pretty much the old sins with just a new coat of paint on them. Uh, because they're really not... Uh, not too many. There, there is no new sin under the sun. They just come up with new forms and expressions of sin and how to do them. And then there are those who are disobedient to parents. The scripture has a lot to say about honoring our parents. I won't take you to it, but in Ephesians 5, 1 through 3, St. Paul has some things to say about that. And there's a promise to us that if we honor our parents, then it will be long with us on the earth. Our days will be long. And it does not mean you'll live to be 100 years old. It just means that even the days that God gives you will be good days if you honor your parents. We need to give honor to those who, who've gone on before us. Uh, in, in the church, we, we honor our spiritual parents, our, the fathers and mothers of the church either those who are now sainted or even if those haven't been officially sainted by the church, but they may be our parents or our grandparents who've loved us and prayed for us. And virtually none of us would be here tonight as Christians if there hadn't been someone before us who prayed for us. God 
honors the, it says even in the marriage ceremony, he honors the prayers of righteous parents, doesn't he? Grandparents. It may have skipped over a generation or two before it got to you, but somebody prayed down the line there, at, or you wouldn't even be here tonight. We receive so many blessings in our lives from people we don't even know that well who have prayed for us. So we thank God for that. So we're to honor our parents, but see, Paul says there are those who are disobedient to parents. And then undiscerning or with no moral understanding, no spiritual or moral understanding. Untrustworthy. You know, it's a terrible thing not to, not to be trustworthy. My father was the kind of man I heard him say once, he said, my word is my bond. And the reason he said that to me, when I was in college, dad was having a real hard time financially, and he had a barn, a large barn on some property that he owned that had some wonderful lumber in it. And a man came to him one day and he said, GT, I'd like to buy that barn from you. And he offered to pay him, I think it was like $500. And dad, and he shook hands on it. Three months went by. The man hadn't put a dime down, hadn't, they hadn't signed any contract, and dad was in real desperate need of money. And a man came in and offered my dad 1500 for the barn and wanted to tear it down uh, to use the lumber to build a house with. And there was plenty of lumber in that huge barn to build a house. In fact, Finally, the man who originally paid the 500 tore it down and built a big, beautiful house with it. And, and so Dad wouldn't sell it to him. And then finally the guy who made the original offer came and paid the 500 and took the barn. I said to him, Dad, why? Why did you do that? Why didn't you sell, sell it to the other guy? You hadn't signed a contract or anything. He said, Son, I promised him. And my word is my bond. I, there are very few people in the world I've ever met that, were quite, that are quite that honest. Not in our day and age, anyway. If you don't sign a whole ream of legal papers, it's not something you have to stick with. You can promise somebody something, but you don't have to stick by it. Ah, well, to be, to be people whose word is trustworthy. And then unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. How many people there are like that in the world? Who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Now, <clears throat> sorry, sorry, I hate to disillusion any of you. Uh, that may feel otherwise, and, and frankly, I've realized that in the Orthodox Church, we have a pacifistic stream of thought that does not believe in death penalty or anything like that, and I honor that and respect that, but I have to tell you this truth, uh, St. Paul didn't have that thought. He, he's saying that people who just practice these things are deserving of death, and he says there are folks that not only know that, and they know that those people who practice these things are deserving of death. Not only do they do the same, but they approve those who practice them. 
so, there are a lot of people who, even though they may not go out and commit some of the same sins that are listed in that whole sad list of sinners and nine types of sin and 12 kinds of sinners, uh, the fact is uh, there are many people who approve of that if they don't practice all those things themselves. Therefore, Paul says, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. So all of a sudden he's going to switch gears. And he's saying, we, he, so he's going to address himself to the righteous person. That is the self-righteous person. See, up to now he's been talking about folks that really are sinners, and, they, and if you confront them, they know it. If they ever look in the mirror, they know how bad they are. One thing I used to like about preaching in prisons, which I did for several years at the beginning of my ministry, you never had to convince the folks in jail that they were sinners. I never did have that problem. They all knew it. I used to say to them, you guys know that you, if, if the truth were known, you're gonna, you'd be here a lot longer than you're going to be. And that always got, yeah, 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 that's the truth. He knew, you know, because they had done a lot more than they had ever gotten arrested for. And you just didn't have to hammer away at the sins of the people in prison because they knew they were sinners. Lots of us religious folks, though, don't know that. And a lot of people that are self-righteous now, we have this cult of niceness in our country. If you're just nice, it covers over all kinds of sin, you know. Uh, you can be a liar and a cheat and a thief, immoral, everything else. Just be nice about it. And you get by with it. And you can commit the most heinous of crimes, and if you just sniffle a little at the, and tell the judge you're sorry, somehow you get a lighter sentence. It's true in our country. That's how you get off. You get out of these things. God is not that easily swayed. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So the whole second chapter of Romans is to explain why God has full authority to judge the folks that Paul has just talked about in chapter 1, who have gone to the bottom of, of all of these types of sin and the type of sinners that have been produced from it. We know, he says, that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. If you have an Orthodox study Bible, on the next page you see the basis of God's judgment. Very excellent discussion, really, of chapter 2 here, so I'm just going to quickly skim through. And do, do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things, and yet you are doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Now, let me pause on this verse. We better not despise the riches of God's goodness. He says, do you despise the riches of God's goodness, his forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Do you know why so God, God is so good to us? 
It's to get us to repent. God uses his mercy, his kindness, and his goodness to lead us to repentance. Then there are some of us stubborn folks that he has to put us in a vice before we can finally get around to repenting. But he will try everything, so to speak, to get us to repent. And he starts out by being good to us and bestowing his mercies on us and his love. Sometimes the things that happen in our lives don't seem good. I, I have an older sister whom I believe is with the Lord, with my whole heart. I know she is. Uh, she was born uh, with severe brain damage at birth. And she lived till she was 65 years old before she died. And my mother cared for her all those years. And she had to care for her like she was a baby. Every bite of food my sister ate, my mother or someone had to give to my sister. She could not even feed herself. And she had many, many infirmities and sicknesses throughout all of her, long, her, her 65 years. And the doctors had even said, your daughter will not live until she's a teenager when she was a child. And uh, my mother and my father lovingly cared for her through all those years, and she did live to be 65. She's the kind of person that today uh, we would very piously say she had such a poor quality of life, we shouldn't extend a person's life like that, you know. And maybe there's some kind of argument for that among doctors and nurses who have to take care of folks and how far do you go to keep them alive no heroics were ever done for my sister to keep her alive just love love from her parents and the best care they knew how to give her is all she had but when i look at her life and the impact it had on me and the rest of our family all I can do is say, thank you, God, for giving us Alice because she brought so many blessings to our lives. And I even wonder if I would be standing here tonight if we had not had Alice in our family. My father once said he is not sure he would have been a Christian if it hadn't been for Alice in his life. And so... Sometimes we look at things and say, oh, how terrible that is. And yes, it's a sadness to see somebody suffer. And she suffered a lot throughout her lifetime. But what a blessing she was. And one thing I'm sure about that when I get to heaven, I am counting on getting there. <laughs> when I get there, if there's any reward, at least 50% of it will have to go to Alice, if not more than that because she played such an important role in my own life and my spiritual life. So we look at some things that happen to us and you say, why would this have happened to my child or why did that happen to my loved one? And there's not always an answer for it. Not humanly speaking, there's not an answer for some of the sorrows and heartaches and tragedies of life. But from the divine perspective, there may be a plan that's way beyond anything we could ever hope or think or wish for. 
if we'll trust God, he will take those heartaches and sorrows and he'll figure out a way to make them good in our life. I'm certain of that. And so we should not be people who give up on God just because things haven't gone well. So we must know that God is, is continually bestowing his goodness on us to lead us to repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You realize it's possible to store up wrath? <laughs> it's possible to store up judgment. That's not good news, is it? That's part of the bad news of the gospel. It can happen. It's, it's not just being, oh, well, I've, I'm not so bad after all. After all, there is such a thing as treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each according to his deeds. This is, of course, a quote from the Old Testament. God is a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's an honest God. He's a fair God. He'll never be unfair to anybody. He will never allow one single soul to go to hell. That doesn't deserve to be there. If they go, it's because they've chosen that way of life and refused his way of life. And he will render to each according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good and who seek for glory, honor, and immortality, those are the folks that get eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, what are they going to get? Indignation and wrath. I think I'd choose the previous verse, wouldn't you? I don't think I want indignation and wrath, but it says those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. They're the ones who get indignation and wrath. And tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Paul encompasses all humanity in these two terms, Jew and Greek, which essentially Jew and Gentile. You see, why the Jew first? There was a good question asked me in the break. Because, you see, the Jew had a special privilege, and he's going to enunciate these privileges throughout the book of Romans. Being the chosen people of God through whom the Messiah came, they had many privileges. I've had, I've had some of my Jewish friends saying, we wish we hadn't been chosen, you know. Why did he choose us? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, sort of being facetious about it. But because uh, they've been through a lot of suffering themselves. The point is, he chose them to be the, that vehicle through which the Savior of mankind would be brought into the world. For God to save humanity, there had to be a human God. A man who would become God. And it took God incarnate to save humanity and thus the Jewish race was chosen to bring that man into the world therefore they had many blessings and many privileges and God warns about taking lightly those things 
So it, it, Jew and Gentile refer to the whole human race. So tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So just as there are great blessings, a great, well, great judgment on Jews and Jews first and then Greek, there's also great blessing on Jews first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Keep that in mind. God is fair. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. I'm going to save a little bit of that till tomorrow because this whole passage has to do with, uh, with uh, righteousness that is provided for those who recognize their sinfulness. I do want to skip to verse 16. It says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. God knows the secrets. God knows what's in our heart. We cannot fool him. And so it's extremely important that we not try. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. Now he's a, specifically addressing himself to the Jews and he himself is a Jew, of course. And know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And he's simply talking about things that many of the religious people of Paul's day did. The Jews of, of his contemporaries, he knew their practices. And he says, you, you do these things that you condemn in others. And so often those who are highly critical of others or condemning of others are practicing those things that they condemn in others. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You know, this is, this is my biggest concern, I think, as an Orthodox Christian. We love our faith, and we're so thankful to God for having brought us into Orthodoxy from where we were. But if we're not careful, people will, we will not live what we preach. And my godfather is Metropolitan Maximus, and he says, he once said, we who are Orthodox know where the church is, but we do, know where, do not know where it is not. We have no right to judge those that are outside the faith. <laughs> he said, Christ said, other sheep have I who are not of this fold. He says, uh, I'm quoting Bishop Maximus again. He says, we who call ourselves orthodox, if we're not living the faith, then our very name will condemn us at the judgment seat of Christ, being orthodox. Brothers and sisters, let's be careful that we not become 
conceited or self-satisfied and saying, look, how, look what we have done and what we have achieved and how we have been blessed and become sort of looking down our noses at those who don't call themselves Orthodox. It may be some of them are more faithful to the light they have than we are to the light we have. Let us not be found coming up short at the judgment seat of Christ because we have not lived by the light that God has given us. So I'm going to stop there tonight. Uh, we will have to touch on chapter 3 tomorrow, but I promise you we'll get into the next section tomorrow. All right. Thank you so much, Father.